Um, and this is going to be linked to the investment into infrastructure, but from the perspective of three main institutional investments into our markets, which include insurance companies, banks, and pension funds, and how they have a significant amount of capital, some of which can be used to finance infrastructure projects. Um, so we would like to call up our panelists, Neil Furee, hi, uh, David Kirk, as well as Michael Ticharreva. Thanks so much, gentlemen, for joining me. Um, Neil, I'm starting with you. <laughs> Okay, we're going to speak a lot about regulation in the infrastructure space, infrastructure investment space as well. Um, so Neil, I'd like to start off with you. Perhaps you know, speak to us about um, the regulations governing the investment space um, and you know, in terms of the reasoning around this and, and just the, regu the regulation 28 in terms of the infrastructure space. Speak to us about that and what it all means and why it's so important. Yes. So, uh, luckily, the retirement space is much, or the investments for, for retirement funds is actually, I think, uh, less regulated than the life insurance space uh, and the banking space. So, there's more wiggle room for, for retirement funds. So, we've spoken about um, Reg 28 quite a bit this morning. So, most of you probably know now that that's the, the, the standard that governs the way our pension funds uh, may invest. So... Um, it consists out of various categories. So firstly, um, the first category is cash. So it actually says a fund can invest 100% in cash. Then the next uh, category is bonds. It actually says a, a fund can uh, invest 100% in bonds or in debt. Um, then the next uh, category is, is equities. And it says a, a fund can invest 75% in listed equity. Then commodities, 10%, properties, 25%, and then alternatives, 15%. So um, when Channel spoke earlier, he, he mentioned Eskom bonds and um, I think Transnet bonds and so on. So um, a lot of pension funds actually already have exposure to, to um, uh, infrastructure investments. They might not even know through a lot of these um, SOCC bonds. So on the debt side, the listed debt side, there's actually a lot of room for, for retirement funds to invest in. Then on the listed equity side, we've got a few um, listed uh, uh, infrastructure players uh, that's currently listed on the JSE, the likes of Gaia and Ulisani and so on, where you can get uh, access to, 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 to uh, listed uh, infrastructure opportunities. And then in the alternative space, um, we spoke about uh, private debt funds, uh, private equity funds. So I, I don't think Regulation 28, as it currently stands, is a, an inventor for pension funds to invest in, in infrastructure. Great. Interesting point you make there. Uh, Michael, let me bring you into the conversation. Uh, you know, private banks have always been important, an important institution uh, for the provision of finance. But uh, what is almost triggered the change in the way banks provide financing over the past 10 to 20 years. We always know that there's always a conversation about how there's a lack of funding, uh, banks are very strict and uh, very prudent in the way they uh, you know, bring out their, their financing, but speak to us about why this has changed over the last 10 to 20 years. All right, um, thank you very much. Had you called me 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have answered that question. <laughs> We just were clueless uh, in banking. Uh, there are changes that happened. There is a lot of financing in banks, but the financing is heavily guarded by the quality of assets that are out there. Um, and this is as a result of the new regulations that came, which are effectively risk-based, where you have to allocate capital or whatever funding that you allocate on a risk um, after assessing the risk of the assets you want to invest in. So the main significant change was as a result of Basel II. Uh, Basel II, for those who are in the insurance industry, similar to uh, SEM in South Africa or Solvents II. That requires you to hold capital um, that is equal to a percentage of what we call risk-weighted assets. I think currently 8%. 
and what are risk-weighted assets. Uh, effectively, um, these are loans that are graded according to the quality of the credit. Let's just use South African government. Um, it can be a risk weight of zero, which means if you hold 100 million runs of South African government bonds, uh, you allocate nothing because the risk weight is zero percent. Let's go to the other extreme, which is your structured funding or which is your specialized assets. That's infrastructure that we are dealing with. That's highly risky, very risky. And what do I mean by that? You have to classify it into uh, different categories. Initially, you have to develop the assets. You don't even know what's going to happen. The cash flow is very uncertain. So during that development period, the risk is very high, which means you probably have to, the risk weight is probably 150%. So if you hold 100 million, the risk weight is 150%. You hold capital uh, that's much higher than just going to invest in, in government because uh, the sovereign risk is low. Then you move from there. The assets start operating um, first year, maybe up to five years. You're still trying to establish, you're still trying to see whether uh, Gauteng Freeway is a very good example where people effectively struggle to or didn't want to pay. So you just don't know what's going to happen, so the risk is still very high. The cash flow is still very uncertain. Then beyond that, say in the 15-year time, the asset is stabilized, um, and, and then the risk is a bit low. So it means the risk weights would shift as a result of the change in credit quality of an asset. So that's a big, big issue in infrastructure, which means when banks are now looking at putting money in infrastructure, they look at all those things and then there are assets that may be unprofitable on a risk-adjusted basis for them to put money. I'm sure we'll probably clarify or discuss how some of those things can be handled um, going forward or should be handled so that there is more money being allocated because they, they are things such as credit enhancement that you can do. I think the previous panel spoke about risk allocation, allocating the risk to an appropriate party who is better place to, to money. So there are a lot of mitigating uh, uh, solutions you can implement. But effectively, Basel II came, South African Reserve Bank subscribes to Basel II, and it requires uh, capital to be held on, the on, a, on a risk basis, and infrastructure is considered a very, very risk asset. If it's not well structured, then it's gonna be very costly to the bank, probably very unaffordable. Uh, un unaffordable. So that's the big change that came then you hear that uh, there's less money being allocated towards certain investments. Okay, David, let's bring you into the conversation. Of course, it's uh, quite a similar question, but in terms of uh, insurance companies, uh, how do you think the regulations governing insurance companies have evolved over the past uh, 10 to 20 years, and what has basically triggered the change? Okay, <clears throat> so I think we'll just take the next three or four hours on, on, on that question. <laughs> no, no, um, four minutes, please. <laughs> uh, but m maybe as a bit of context, uh, Neil started by saying that the, the regulations for investments in the pension space or time space are actually relatively light and relatively easy. We heard earlier in the session that there actually aren't a lot of constraints on infrastructure or alternatives as an asset class. So in many ways, pension funds, from a regulatory perspective, are the free lunch for investing in these assets. Because you do whatever you want, really. Um, in the banking space, it's quite different. These are now long-term assets, credit risky assets. If you look at a bank funny, they tend to fail. So banks have tried to repackage those and transfer it somewhere else. So the banks themselves aren't really ideal homes for the, the, these assets. And maybe in between those two sits a, a large life insurer, where they have a, a large balance sheet, they have long-term, sometimes illiquid liabilities, that they can then match with a longer-term illiquid asset. But for short-term insurers or non-life insurers or small life insurers, also isn't necessarily particularly much, much appetite there. So it's more, so I guess, the context on who plays in the space. Similar to the introduction of Basel II to South Africa, we've moved into a world of the New Insurance Act last year, uh, still typically called Solvency Assessment and Management. And there we look in a risk-based way at all our assets and our liabilities, and we shock the assets for changes in interest rates and or credit risk and or equity risk. And we do the same thing with the liabilities and any shortfall between those two as to our capital requirements. And this was all set up for, for you know, many, many years of, of a process. And we got to 
uh, different shocks for equities, including a 49% hit to the value of an equity if it is an, an other equity, so not listed on, on our exchange. So typical equity-based infrastructure investments would take a 49% hit if it weren't for a special carve-out. So around 2014, 2015, in Europe, uh, the, the regulators there and insurers started looking at ways of, and you can, you can phrase it different ways, either looking at ways of removing impediments, inappropriate impediments from the capital calculations, that was limiting the ability of insurers to invest in infrastructure, or you can say, we just want to find a bit of an incentive to encourage and promote insurers to use their balance sheets and to, to invest in infrastructure assets. And they basically said, in short, that for high quality infrastructure investments, we need a whole set of criteria which we can go into if, if we really want to, you get about a 30% benefit on what the capital requirement would be elsewhere. So it's a very direct, very, very natural incentive to invest in infrastructure assets. You get the benefit of the yield uplift and the higher returns and the higher real returns, uh, the benefit of credit spreads over a longer term, which can be really important for matching an annuity portfolio. But more or less, you get to hold 70% of what the capital requirements would have been elsewhere. So the push towards SAM has maybe discouraged insurers from investing in infrastructure. But with this offset, on the other hand, it has sort of added a little bit of that back. So for the larger insurers, larger life insurers, annuity books and with profit books, it can be quite an attractive asset class. Okay, Michael, perhaps let's speak about the success of the Basel regulation. Uh, there's lots of regulation, it seems, in, in this infrastructure investment space, but uh, perhaps speak to us about the success thereof and you know, what it's actually done for, for that kind of space. So, look, it has been successful. It's a very short answer, really, to give on this. Um, the main aim was to bring uh, stability in the financial markets. The main aim was to make sure that banks hold enough capital um, such that if there are problem issues that arise, at least there is enough capital to absorb those shocks before banks go down. Because that, um, uh, that is a big issue if you're going to have instability in the financial markets. So when Basel II was introduced, there are a whole lot of things that were there. Uh, the holding of, holding of uh, higher capital just being one of them. And what we have seen, there were a lot of, a lot of worries that um, this is going to constrain banks, how they do business, but um, banks have gotten used to it. They have actually increased their capital requirements and this kind of feeling that um, we, are uh, we are safe. So Basel II has been successful. Uh, I think it was introduced in 2008. Then we had the 2008-2009 financial crisis when Basel II was just being introduced. And then there have been a lot of other changes that happened over the past 10 years with what we now even call Basel III, and it has effectively strengthened the financial system. So there is some bit of stability from, from what we see. Um, I can't really, I know it will take us another five hours to discuss all the different changes, but around the world there is that feeling that it's a bit safer. And I don't want to be caught up later, maybe after you know three months, then we also have another financial crisis. Then you say, but Michael, you say it is a bit safer. I can't predict, but um, we seem to be very good, looking good. Um, so it has been very successful from that perspective. Uh, Neil, perhaps you can speak to us about the pros and cons of how um, infrastructure can be in the form of listed or unlisted debt or equity. Yeah, so um, I think there's a, there's a place for both. But um, because most retirement funds in SA uh, are actually defined contribution funds, um, it makes it a bit more challenging to have unlisted assets uh, in your portfolio, uh, especially where you've got individual member choice. So I think the fund where Shino uh, consults, you probably don't have individual member choice. You do? Okay. So, But uh, it is a bit of an issue to then decide, okay, how do, are you going to actually allocate um, returns to each individual? You go through the J-curve and so on. So there's a, a lot of different... Um, uh, things that you need to consider when when, when you look at unlisted assets. Um, I think um, because the the, the listed um, uh, infrastructure uh, plays on the JCE. I think they've started out very small, and now they caught the bit in a trap of being too small. So 
the way the reason why they're listed is to have liquidity and to have regular pricing and so on. But the, they hover around the 500 million that uh, level, so they actually don't get the the necessary uh, liquidity that they are actually looking for. So um, yeah, so I think the and 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 the the key thing about the listed side or the downside about the listed side is the the, the discount uh, to net asset value. So we're on the unlisted. Uh, um, on the unlisted side, you value the portfolio of, say, solar assets, and it's valued at a billion, and they carry it uh, as a, at a billion on the balance sheet. But obviously, uh, when it's listed, supply and demand for that specific share actually um, determines the, the value. So we've, we've seen these listed infrastructure plays uh, on the JSE and with negative sentiment and so on. They actually traded quite a significant discount to net asset value, which is, I would say, probably the, the main uh, drawback of, of, of uh, the listed environment. But to, to actually see scale uh, in this space, we actually need more listed instruments. Because, uh, like we said earlier, 75% can be invested into listed equities, up to 100% can be invested into listed bonds. So. So we actually, I think we've made good progress on the unlisted uh, structuring side, but to get it more mainstream, we need more, more solutions in the listed side. We need lots of solutions. Do you want to give Yeah, a, a comment on that, because I think uh, sometimes the word listed is assumed to have magical connotations. Mm. And a listed bond in South Africa doesn't particularly have any more liquidity than an unlisted bond most of the time. So I'm less of an expert on Regulation 28, but Regulation 28 also paints listed bonds in this glorious category and do what you want, but there are many of the same risks of unlisted bonds. In the insurance space, uh, we don't have to hold capital against liquidity risk, but there is a, an indicator that we need to calculate to look at the mismatch between liquidity on our assets and liabilities over a 12-month perspective. And again, you add the magical word listed to an asset and you're assuming that it is liquid, so liquidity is a key consideration from an infrastructure perspective. And I sometimes worry that instruments end up being listed just for the sake of being listed and being tagged. Now I'm listed even though there's really no trade in the last price, maybe 270 days stale. Yeah, but you typically get uh, liquidity once you get scale. So once something is large and listed, so our big government bonds are very liquid. Uh, the big, mm -hmm. Our big listed... Uh, um, stocks are, are very liquid so so we actually need scale in that space so we probably need one of the big unlisted guys to list a massive portfolio to get some liquidity in that space you can't start out with a 500 million or or something you need you need scale and i think in other parts in the world we've seen we've seen uh, we can there's learning from 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 other parts of the world where we've actually seen successes in, in that but I, I i think there's no one pronged approach so you, you need to to, to play on both sides, and typically, you want the unlisted the unlisted guys to take a bit more of a development risk, and then um, almost more of a dev go, and then they'll the list go when they're listed and when it's already in in operation and so on. Then the, the pension funds will become more comfortable with the risk. Okay, uh, let's actually pose a question to our audience. Don't forget that's the link and the pin uh, for our poll. We can just get the question up. Or a quote. <laughs> okay, we're just getting the question up now. Um, are the Basel and SAM uh, capital regulations overly penal for infrastructure investment? Those are your options there. There's quite a few. <laughs> yes, only Basel, uh, SAM, no, not sure. So if you could just vote over there. Uh, I don't know if any of you want to pick up on that question. Yeah, sure. 100%. Michael, do you want to go first? Everybody's probably going to pick not sure. <coughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone's sure. 53.3%. People so, are still voting. Well, um, I, I definitely didn't know that such a question was going to be asked to the audience. Um, my view is that um, it's yes or no. They've already voted, right? I don't want to affect the voting. My view is that it's yes and no. Now, if you look at what Bezo 2 has done and what SEM has done, like we have said, it's risk-based capital. So it's a case of risk. So we need to look at the risk and we need to manage the risk. 
let's look at the bank, for example, because that's where um, I come from. We need to look at how the infrastructure uh, or how the asset or how the project is actually structured. The previous panel spoke about there are just a lot of projects, but those projects are not bankable simply because the structuring of how to manage the risk right from the start, the financing, the risk transfer, and even to allocate which type of investor must come at this stage, which type of investor must come at the next stage. Um, it's just not there. There is lack of understanding. If you go into a bank, you tell them, we can do this and that. Like For example, I will understand what an insurance can do, so I can actually bring a solution. The bankers typically don't understand or don't, don't know what needs to be done. Um, so, yes, these regulations have been penal, but you can structure and create enhanced transactions and manage, manage them in such a way that um, the penalties are not too big. Um, you, 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 you can actually put money into it. So it's all in the risk management. So overall, I believe they are not penal. I believe we just need to train ourselves on what these assets exactly are. What are really the characteristics? Do you actually know what happens from the day you say I want to build um, um, an airport up to the 40 years when the airport has been functioning? And then you allocate risk accordingly. So for me, that's my overall assessment is they're not penal. They need to stay as they are the regulations. We need to change our mindset and we need to start developing or designing solutions. Get us in the same room with the pension guys uh, life assurance guys, everyone else, DFIs, and the private banking guys, and then we start talking. And then we all agree on how we can move. And, and government, by the way, because one of the biggest risks is at the early stage of the investment. Give how train, it would never have been there had government not come in, put in a big equity component, and had government not come in and guaranteed the number of passengers. Because when I put my money, I want my money back. Bears or Twiggles are telling me a whole lot of stories. And then I'm going to say, well, so where is the fallback? Government comes, he says, well, passenger numbers, I'll say I want 40,000 per day or 50,000 per day. If we don't reach that, what exactly then do we need to do? Where is my fallback? Government then comes and say, then we're guaranteeing your, your passenger numbers. If there is a shortfall, which is exactly what the provincial government did, if there is a shortfall, we will have to put in the money that money is then used to repay my investment. So there are a whole lot of things that must be looked at. So that question, for me, panel, but no, there are solutions. So you weren't too far off because yes voted 22.6% and not sure 61.3. Um, David? Yes, so on the insurance side, uh, one way to look at it is that in general, the allowance for infrastructure assets combining what we have as an illiquidity uh, adjustment and the infrastructure allowance is more penal than what Solvency II allows for in Europe. So that's one, one benchmark. Another market has looked at this and their allowance is better, so it is more attractive to invest into infrastructure assets in Europe than it is in South Africa. That's, that's some bad news fronts. Also bad news is that the sort of infrastructure assets that, that qualify are generally going to be of the more mature, higher quality market. As you're talking about, you need to have it to be an, an availability-based revenue model or need to be a rate of return regulation to make sure that the investor is getting a pretty low risk, pretty uh, 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 manageable, predictable return. So that's also fairly restrictive in terms of uh, uh, what, what assets will, will meet that. But on the flip side, what we're saying is you're going to have a 30% reduction in what the capital charge would be for an otherwise maybe similar project. Um, these projects do need to be based in South Africa, they need to be in the South African interest, and uh, mostly, not with most, they do need to have the sovereign government as the, the off-taker. So uh, very clearly a, a development incentive there. But then also on the side where it maybe looks quite attractive, if you have a debt instrument, you pretty much require an external credit rating. And we'll look up the risk base on ex that external rating, where the rating agency would have looked at the credit characteristics, they would have looked at the covenants, they would have looked at the protections, and they would bake that all into their allowance and then we take 30% off the risk allowance for that. So, no, not penal, it could be better, but there's certainly areas where if anything actually is arguably more attractive than a pure risk-based approach would, would, would ask for. Neil, do you want to comment on that, or can I pose a different question to you? 
Money or the box. Okay, uh, Neil, just talk to us about the sustainability of greenfield infrastructure projects versus brownfield uh, projects, specifically for pension funds. Yeah, so I think um, most pension funds won't be comfortable investing in greenfield projects uh, um, on a direct basis. So I think, um, and, and even in uh, most pension funds won't directly invest in, in a specific project, except maybe for the biggest pension funds in the country. So most pension funds will take a portfolio approach where they m might have a couple of uh, uh, brownfield projects and a small component of that might be uh, a developmental uh, uh, component as well. Um, but f with all the, and we've listened to some of the examples of infrastructure uh, projects failing and so on. So I think most, most um, pension funds will, will take a blended portfolio view of, of, of projects. But where is the risk or the return um, in these types of infrastructure so the, the, the Most of the risk and most of the return actually sits on the development side. So you actually, for a lot of these projects, you need to invest, say, 100 million upfront in securing the land, doing the EIAs, paying for your, all your consultants, paying for the bankers with the suits and the ties and so on. Um, so, and that's why there's a struggle to get, uh, to get um, products that's actually investable because it actually costs a lot of money to get product, uh, projects investable. And I think that's why you once said earlier the DBSA is actually now providing funding for these firms to actually um, develop these projects. And in the past, we saw some of these consulting engineering firms and so on also put some capital in risk, but now with uh, the, the slump in the construction industry and so they don't have a lot of work, so they don't want to put a lot of additional capital at risk and so on. So, um, yeah, so they, uh, that's the issue. But obviously the guys who, and especially with the guys who were first with the solar PV projects and so on, who developed the projects, and so on, they've made exceptional uh, returns. So, but that's, yeah, the I'll risk and return uh, payoff. So the, the, the big return lies in that first part. And then like we said earlier, even if you come in at a later stage, once it developed, once it matured and so on, you can still for some projects expect CPI plus six, seven, maybe even more. Okay. David, uh, I'm going to pose this question to you. Um, should the solvency or SAM regime make allowance for credit enhancement techniques? Uh, yes, and it does. I guess that's the, the, the simple answer there. Um, there are a couple of uh, hoops to jump through, um, but there's, there's no particular reason that you can't use um, any form of credit enhancement available. Uh, SAM did set out to be a principle-based legislation, as many others, and then you look at the hundreds of pages of rules and you, you wonder how much we succeed in that front. But uh, yeah, credit enhancements as a risk mitigation tool would be considered. Um, the only caveat is that the uh, exactly entirely appropriately, the issuer of that, that credit guarantee or that credit default swap or whatever the instrument is, you would also need to factor into account their, their own credit risk. So there's, there's no absolute free lunch there. Um, oftentimes the, the risk and complexity involved is a big deterrent to using it, but in principle there's no problem and they are used. Okay. Michael, um, are there any other measures that can be put in place to help facilitate the provision of banking or financing, rather, for banks towards infrastructure projects? I mean, it's a question I posed earlier, just in a different way, about how there's always a lack of funding. Yeah, so uh, there is no, uh, I don't think there are any shortcuts uh, to this. The best way to manage risk is to manage risk on the ground. You can have your credit enhancement in terms of instruments and everything, but I don't think that's the best way to manage risk. So what banks do is they look at a project on a standalone basis. If it makes sense, then they start thinking about what other enhancements can we put in place. So with banks, I think there is a lot of training required. Banks, what they normally do is bring your project when it's ready. Unfortunately, the sponsors you are making to make the project ready don't understand a lot of the issues relating to financing. So sometimes when they structure the projects, they miss out a lot of the issues that banks want to see. So the only solution, no shortcuts, we need to bring these people into the room. And I'll use my own example. 
how I use to get projects off is that I would be part of the whole team when a project is being developed. And you would find a lot of crazy ideas being brought into how the, the project must be developed. Then we would discuss and say, you'll never get funding for this because the bank is going to say no because of this aspect. Then you provide a solution and say, okay, what we need to do there is let's put this structure in place, let's bring uh, Marion Roberts or Group 5, let's bring uh, this aspect, then the bank is going to be a bit more comfortable. So there are no shortcuts. There is a lot of money. It's about making the projects bankable, and the best way to do that is being on the table on the ground. What do I say to actuaries? They are probably one of the best guys to do that. Why? They even have a tool already available. The one, the ramp, risk analysis and management for project, it does exactly that, working alongside engineers because there is the financing aspect, there is the technical aspect, and then you manage the project on the ground so that you de-risk the project as much as you can. Then in addition to that, you need government. As sponsors, initially, those first five years I spoke about, let's say first two years, development period, then the next five years, you need the government to come and provide stability to a particular project by putting in the required guarantees, credit enhancement. We can use another example, ESCOM. Um, these two power stations, is it Medupi and Kusile or whatever, were meant to cost, I think, about 150 million runs. That's in 2007, 2008. Right now, they are costing more than 300, sorry, million, a billion, sorry, 350, uh, 350 billion versus 150 billion. Now, you have already asked the pension fund or your life office to put money, but they have been cost overruns, fraud, a whole lot of things, operational issues, so that's the risk that can only be removed by government being on the table to make sure they address those risks or at least put a, a backstop um, so that those risks can be managed. Then money is going to come from banks, insurance companies, whoever, pension funds, money is going to come. For me, those are the solutions. We can talk for centuries, but there's no shortcut. That's what needs to be done. But is government managing those risks? I mean, if you look at the state of our state-owned entities, um, it's not looking good. Okay, so, so I've, already, I've already said it earlier in my speaking, so let me, uh, be, let me be clear. There are a lot of people and risk managers and innovators out there who can be in those entities or play a role in those entities. Like I told you, when you're financing, for example, you need the financing guys, the insurance guys, and the technical guys when you're developing a project from day one so that you don't miss out anything. So government does not have those people employed within these institutions so that you can manage these risks uh, optimally. So it doesn't. I don't think they are doing a lot of that and it's probably not their fault because even if you go into the private sector, it's still in silos. I can say I am lucky because I've worked in all these different parts, then I ended up in a bank and then I ended up seeing what's happening where people are struggling in structuring a project, and then you realize, no, you need all the different parts in the same room, um, and this is exactly what government need to do. In national treasury, within all these parastatals, not, not, not leaving them to do whatever they wanna do, and then they come to the bank and say, okay, here's our project is ready. You're gonna see a whole lot of holes in that project, such that a bank will not be able to put money, because the reserve bank will be saying, risky project, hold, 150% um, uh, X percent of 150% of the asset you have because it's not well created in hands, it's not well managed, it's, there are a whole lot of things. So I don't think government is doing it, but the solutions are there and I, 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 there is training and these DFIs, if you go to DBSA, those guys know a lot, but again, they're working in, in silos. There is no speaking that strong between banks and development finance institutions because some of these solutions or most of them are within development finance institutions actually. But again, there isn't, uh, there, is a con there isn't a concerted effort to work together to have those solutions implemented. So government, they are still nowhere they're supposed to be. That's at least my view. Okay. Um, perhaps we can pose some questions um, from the audience if there are any. Can you just pick up your hand and we'll get a mic to you. There's one here in front. 
Yes, I was saying, and um, the question is mostly for the banking industry and their outlook on risk um, versus the need for social infrastructure development in South Africa, given the kind of um, need that we've got. Um, we, we can employ as much skill as is required to make sure that we mitigate risk to the umpteenth level. There are, require, there are social infrastructure developments where we are going to have to take the risk collectively. Um, otherwise, we will only focus on um, alternative energy and jobs fund and leave everything else behind. So for those um, projects where you can mitigate 80%, 90% of the risk, um, what is the bank's outlook? And the reason I'm asking this is because when you look at the Global Impact Investing Network research that was published, it gets published annually. Um, it's a global res um, um, research, and it says that in other countries, 50% of the assets that were allocated to emerging markets across a variety of, of sectors, they have return expectations that weighed more for impact at 98%. And for returns for financial, uh, financial returns at 91%. Where does the banking industry, wh what is the banking industry's outlook in, in such um, requirements for funding? It's a question uh, that's discussed worldwide. Uh, I can start by saying, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, the mandate of banks um, the biggest mandate is not uh, just um, social impact investing in the sense that if it's not well structured, it's not well structured. The starting point is the project must be well structured so that you manage the credit risk. So in South Africa, you will find, go to all the banks. Um, it's, it's a case of mindset, it's a, it's a case of the strategy of the bank, um, but also driven by regulation. If you go to all the banks, they are hugely conservative when it comes to uh, investing infrastructure and uh, projects with a social impact. They will assess them in exactly the same way um, as any other project. Then at the end of the day, they can then come and say, but what are also the social impacts that are there? And, and to be honest, they may end up putting money. They can ignore one or two aspects, but they cannot be seen to be reckless because it has got implications on the whole financial system. So there is training required within banks. I already mentioned it. There are a lot of other things that bankers probably um, don't see. There is a lot of training also and coordination required within a government. Then there's a lot of big roles that um, DFIs need to play. And I'll tell, I don't know which DFI you come from, whether it is World Bank or DBSA, I'll tell you where the solution is if you want banks to change that thinking. You need to come with these credit enhancement solutions, backstops. Let's say as an example, as an example, we issue a bond in the South African market to develop a power plant or whatever it is we need to develop. That bond need to be credit enhanced initially. At least the first five to 10 years need to be credit enhanced. So that we, when a bank comes in with a bank's mandate, because they have got a mandate, they can say, we have assessed the project, it makes sense. With all the training and skills you have put, it makes sense. But if anything goes wrong, usually if it's well-structured, very few things go wrong to lead to a total loss. You can always correct things as you go, right? If anything goes wrong, we have got World Bank. They have come with a 75% guarantee. They are A-rated, uh, which means we use credit substitution method as a bank. Um, we no longer are putting a, a credit rating on the project. We are now looking at a World Bank, or we are now looking at 
South African government because they have put a guarantee they themselves are comfortable and they've got confidence in this project. So they put a guarantee that a backstop, which means I now don't have my, my capital costs are now lower, I can now put money as a bank. And then you've got a, you're gonna have a lot of impact investing happening. So whatever, however best you have structured your project, you still need that. And you are going to see the banks changing their mindset. Because the banks are simply saying, but why should we be taking the risk? Why should World Bank and South African come and put this backstop here? We issue a bond in the market for developing this particular asset with that 75% guarantee. We can take the other 50% risk. There is no problem. And then we can start investing. We just need to be in the same room. I've already said this. We need to be same in the same room. Um, and it then can be sorted. So the bank's outlook is, if a project is not bankable, it's not bankable, and that's it. Whether the social impact, you see affordable housing, there isn't a lot of funding in affordable housing, which involves a lot of infrastructure and top structure. There isn't. It's there, but you can never get it easily from a bank. Go there, I've, I've seen all the banks, they try. I've even spoken to an executive about four weeks ago. They have gotten tired because the risks are just too much including corruption, fraud, and so forth. So that's why you need those backstops. So to answer you, the money is there. The banks are very willing, but they will simply never put money where the project is not bankable, where the risks are not uh, covered. They just won't do that. I, I, you, you can go, because sometimes you start thinking about your family and how you're going to be fired when things go wrong. You're just not going to put money. Do you want to add something there? <clears throat> yeah, just, a, I guess, a point... Risk management around uh, having the, the appropriate modeling and the appropriate engineering decisions to make sure the risk of the project is low, that's important and, and fairly obvious. But beyond that, then risk becomes a question of risk sharing. And who takes on which type of risk and who's better placed to take on which type of risk? And if you've got a 20 or 40 year project, significant risk there revolves around the overall economy and policy, and it's quite difficult for a private entity to take on that risk on a 40-year basis without any control, whereas from a government perspective, there is the ability to take that broader picture. So I would then argue that through um, availability-based uh, remuneration metrics and so on, there'd be ways to make sure the correct risks are with the banks and lenders and the correct risks are with governments. There are dangers there as well, though. I mean, rate of, rate of return regulation, this sounds like a brilliant idea for the, the finances. Whatever my costs are, whatever the demand is, don't worry, I'll get my appropriate return on capital. It's a brilliant way of reducing risk for the, 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 the lender. But on the other side, where's the incentive to operate on an efficient basis? That actually, rather than having reduced risks overall, that significantly reduced risks for the lender and arguably increased risk for the country as a whole and for, uh, for governments. So you've got to find like, the, the right tools and the right ways of, of sharing it. And the other aspect, maybe related to risk and risk sharing, are things like uh, positive externalities. Certain of these projects are going to be a good thing for the country, a good thing for society, but the benefits won't necessarily accrue to the direct participants in that project. And you are always going to have an underinvestment by the private sector in those sorts of projects because they aren't getting the benefits of this positive public externality. And that is the area where government should be pushing that, that, that angle. So it's choosing the right battles, where the right area, where's the right allocation of risk, rather than saying, you know, the government must do it all, or equally, private sector just kind of sorted out. It requires the right sharing of risk and reward. Neil, do you want to add anything? No, I think David covered more or less what I wanted to say. Okay, great. Are there any more questions from the audience? No questions? Okay. I have a question, though. Um, you know, Michael, you mentioned something that there's just... There's so much going on, there's so much risk in the country at the moment. We have a number of commission of inquiries taking place because of all the corruption that's been brought to the light. But whoever would like to answer this question, what kind of returns do you, do you think investors expect in these kind of economic conditions and the risks that have been presented? And that's more for David and Neil. I was going to say it was for Neil. We just want a lot of money. <laughs> we just want a lot of money. But uh, look, real returns reasonable real returns um, is what we expect. That's all I can say. I don't want to say the numbers. I can just say CPI 
plus X percent is what we want. But um, I'll leave that to and Neil I and think uh, Dave. And, and most of, and, and um, Shana also alluded to it earlier, I think most pension funds have a return target, a blended return target of, say, CPI plus four uh, thereabouts. And uh, when you do pension fund valuations and so on, that's also more or less the, the valuation assumption that, that, that most actuaries will use. So, and I think um, we're blending infrastructure and so on, like we saw, well, Johan also mentioned earlier, with these uh, infrastructure assets that, um, that, that actually easily will provide that. So, um, I think we are in the era of a new normal um, with uh, the effects of quantitative easing and so on. So, making the right asset allocation decisions tactical asset allocation decisions and so on will become more important. The old era where you could just give money to the top four or five um, equity managers in the country and they'll make 30%. I think we won't see that soon. So, um, yeah, I think the work of asset consultants and asset managers um, are cut out for them. Yeah. I mean, it, it is an important question. And as you notice, it, it's a, it is an impossible question to, to answer. Yeah. Because as, as you spoke about before, the required return for a brand new innovative startup Greenfields operation, which you have no idea how it's going to work out, should be very different from a mature established uh, uh, project with very, very clear cash flows out for the next 40 years. Um, CPR plus four feels, and that's the only word I can use is feels, um, low, generally speaking, for more of the investments I've seen some of my insurance clients take a look at. Um, but entirely appropriate for, for others. Um, and the dangers of saying, well, this is the return that we require, you'll inevitably end up with all the highest risk projects because they will look more attractive. So t uh, understanding the, the, the project from the ground up, as Mike was talking about, understanding what the risks are, what a reasonable uh, return and realistic return is, um, you need to then factor that into on a, on a project by project basis. Okay, just one more question. Um, I covered the PIC inquiry extensively, and of course, uh, pension funds were discussed to a far extent. And um, what was brought to light was the fact that investments were made into various companies, into infrastructure in Mozambique, for example, uh, in, an, in an oil refinery company, and. Uh, it appears as though there was no proper due diligence done because a lot of these investments have fallen through and of course that directly impacts government employees pension funds which the PIC invests on behalf. Um, but just, just briefly, can you, any of you just explain you know, the kind of process that needs to be followed to ensure that something like that doesn't happen? I mean we had a whole commission of inquiry looking into the bad investment decisions that were made putting all these pension funds at risk. Uh, and you know, how do we avoid something like that? So maybe I can just on um, the, it's quite a specialized skill to actually do due diligence on these projects and looking at all the financing structures and so on. That's why the big investment banks have specialized infrastructure deal teams. So the likes of the PRC, even though it's a big fund, they might have some of the skills in us, but other patient funds won't have the, the uh, infrastructure specialists to be able to actually um, do that due diligence on the ground. So I think that's why most funds will partner with the fund manager um, and, and invest through, through that. So I think um, it's about getting the right, the right skill and the right people involved at, a, at, the, at the right stages. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so thanks, Neil. I, I, look, the key word is governance. It's really governance. And when we talk about governance, we have to be very strict with governance. Um, when decisions are being made, um, everyone must be, um, they, 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 in their mind, they must be following all the governance processes that are in place. So the interesting thing is, if you go to all those organizations, if you go to PIC, they have governance structures and policies in place. Those things are there. But they weren't used. It's They're just not used. Yeah. Um, it's they, those things are there. So it's it's, it's governance. Uh, again, there is no shortcut. That's what I normally say. It's just governance and people having uh, some principles that guide them through that. I think the second uh, the, the second thing though is um, uh, to do with um, you know what exactly do you want? What outcome do you want for your future generations? Uh, I'm one person who's always had saying whatever we see today, 
would have been built by previous generations. So those guys are making decisions wherever they are, whatever they are doing, where they are sitting. Whatever decision you are making now, you are doing, you are making it for a future generation. And if you are reckless in making that decision, you are always going to have uh, problems because you are creating problems for the future. Even actually sitting in this room, they are here because of what was developed by uh, previous generations of actuaries who came up with things and developed the profession. So again, there's, there are no shortcuts. Governance, and then number two, just have a sense of responsibility because whatever you're doing today as an individual, wherever you are, it's going to affect the future generation. Probably less, it won't affect you as much potentially, but the future generation is gonna be accepted. Probably pay a lot or benefit a lot from the actions you'd have taken. That's, that's my comment on that. But just on infrastructure, with all infrastructure projects, there will be political risk. So I think if you're not comfortable with political risk, then you won't be comfortable with investing in, in infrastructure. So, and also you've got people maybe not in that much that needs to sign off a lot of mega billion projects. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of political risk and facilita facilitation fee risks and so on. Involved. I don't know if we should call it facilitation, but... Um, <laughs> bribes. Yes. Uh, no, not bribes, but I mean there was a lot of influence and that's what, what came out of the, the inquiry, that there was a lot of pushback and, uh, yeah. Do you want to add anything, David, before we conclude? Yeah, just the, the, well, the one phrase I was looking for was kind of conflicts of interest. Yeah. And yes. any time there are parties who have a different uh, aim in mind than, let alone future generations, just kind of the current generation, you know, me and my three and five-year-old kid would be nice to look after us. So the conflicts of interest are key to understand what those are. Um, but this isn't unique to infrastructure. The risks are amplified because many deals are bespoke and distinct and different, and you've got hundreds of pages of legal documents that have been written for that particular deal, whereas in a slightly more vanilla corporate bond, you, you recognize all the terms. But I'm still horrified when I ask um, asset managers for details about the corporate bonds that they've invested in in a fund. And they've invested in it and now needs to know how to value this and more than that, how to allow for the risk. And they don't know whether it is callable or puttable or convertible. And like, well, how, how did you decide that the return was appropriate, the price was appropriate, how, how this fit in your risk metric? So something as simple as a relatively vanilla corporate bond often gets glossed over. So you sort of amplify the risk by a thousand for the bespoke things and issues can really come, come and suck infrastructure. So it's a general point, risk amplified with, with infrastructure, I think. Most definitely. Okay, great. Any questions? No? Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you to our speakers. We really do appreciate it. We have a little gift for you. <laughs> Thank you. It's okay. It's just a pen. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Eh?